I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. Despite all the welcoming arms, Ukraine's massive refugee crisis is a stark reminder that most migrants are shut out, victimized and stereotyped by racism and xenophobia. Some people need to hate. They don't want to go to your class about implicit bias. They don't want to desegregate. They have a deeper need to have an other. And what is that about? Well, Freud used the concept of a defensive projection projecting the shame and the guilt that you have inside yourself onto another, and that makes you feel great. And later, the grim reality living in a refugee camp in East Africa. They're stuck there day in, day out. Their children are born there. Their their children go to school there. Options feel and are limited. The the refugee camp, which was destined to be a temporary thing, has become a permanent living place. The psychology of who we accept, who we shut out, and why coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. According to the head of the UN Refugee Agency, the number of refugees leaving Ukraine could reach an estimated 4 million, making it the fastest and largest exodus of people in Europe since World War II. European nations have been stepping up, welcoming women and children with open arms, offering shelter, food, and clothing. As heartwarming as these images are, The humanitarian crisis in Ukraine could not be in sharper contrast to other and past migrant crises, where refugees from North Africa and Central America, children and women, have drowned at sea or perished crossing the desert in an effort to flee conflict. How do we square that inequity? And why does hatred, racism, and fear of strangers impact our willingness to help those in need? In his book, Of Fear and Strangers, A History of Xenophobia, Author, historian, psychoanalyst, and psychiatrist George Macari tackles xenophobia and asks why societies develop a fear of the other, why is it normal to stereotype, and why does it feel great to hate? George Macari, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you so much for having me. So George, for years I've been reading about this growth of xenophobia, whether it's in parts of the U.S. or in Europe. But if we tackle this from a historical perspective, how far back does this idea go? So if you go, want to think about like where are there descriptions of things that look to us like we would call it xenophobia, I think you can go back to the written record. You know, it goes back as far as there is a written record of people treating uh, people of difference, ethnic groups or groups that speak different languages um, aggressively, fearfully. Uh, so... That's really why I thought this really wasn't going to be a story I could tell. The, the, the thought that this goes back all the way to antiquity, and most people thought the word was from Greek antiquity. I'm not a classicist, so I thought that was kind of game over for me. Um, but it turns out that if you think about it, the term xenophobia flags that this is an irrational fear. Hmm. And so I started to get very interested in the notion of when people thought it was uncool, not ethical, politically and socially corrosive and catastrophic. And that turns out to be the history of this term xenophobia, which emerges only in the late 19th century, when people, thanks to globalization, start to say, hey, you know what? If we always take strangers as enemies, we're always going to be at war because the world is getting smaller. 
It's interesting. Even how do we even parse that word xeno and phobia? Like, what? Where do those come from? I mean, I think xeno is almost Greek. No, what do yes, we know about it? They're both they're, they're, exactly. So they're both Greek terms, and that's why a lot of people just uh, you know write in textbooks and histories of racism. This goes back to ancient Greece because xenos is a really interesting word from ancient Greek, which means both the stranger and the foreigner. And the xenos was also a relational word. It meant that the host owed the stranger um, care. And so it's actually a kind of really fascinating word that has an ethic attached to it. Um, Phobos means, is also Greek, it means fear. Um, So everyone assumed you put those words together, it must be from Greek antiquity. And and when I went to look, I couldn't find it anywhere. In fact, it doesn't Mm. exist in our written record of Greek antiquity. And what happened was in the late 19th century, this kind of weird uh, Reuters stenographer who was a kind of language buff and uh, uh, interested in coining new terms got this wire from Shanghai about the Boxer Revolt, these up, this uprising of Chinese against all the foreigners who were starting to occupy their failing empire. Their motto was support the Qing, the, the, the government, destroy the foreigners. So he labeled them xenophobes, and that went viral. Uh, it went viral around all the different colonies and all the different colonizers because they all feared that something like that could happen to them too. Interesting. I wonder, though, if we even, if we pause and think about this kind of deeper human impulse to see otherness. Uh, You're a psychiatrist. You think about the human mind, how we function. Is there something in us, deeply programmed in us, that is one that is fearful of things that look different, that sound different, that appear different? Yeah, I thought it was very important to acknowledge that that was, in fact, the case and that all of that kind of doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as xenophobia. So I start to talk about something I call other anxiety, which starts with any human meeting someone who's different and a little frisson of discomfort if they have different customs, if they speak a different language, uh, if they don't, uh, you know, uh, have the same assumptions as you. You know, I, I can read you a, the first paragraph of the book if you yeah. want. It, it, it talks about that. I, I write, the arrival of a stranger creates mystery. Who is it? Why is he here? What does he want? These simple inquiries tap into some of the greatest quandaries of existence. From time immemorial, strangers have brought forth questions of identity and meaning, self and community, power, knowledge, and belief. Strangers, foreigners, and aliens provoke anxiety. You know, I really wanted to say that is a very kind of normal, everyday kind of anxiety. It's only when it becomes uh, exaggerated, rigidly, rigidly defended, that we can't use the normal mechanisms we use, which is dialogue, mutual recognition. You tell me about yourself, I'll tell you about myself. Those things have also worked for millennia. And, you know, one of the things I really do want to undermine is this notion that evolution has made us need to attack strangers. In fact, evolutionary biologists sometimes come to this rather glib assumption, being communitarian, finding a way of cooperating has been perhaps the most adaptive things that thing that humans have ever done. That's how we get big cities. That's how we become powerful societies. That's how we, in fact, survive. So cooperation is clearly in us just as much as competition and, and uh, the need to find enemies. 
the questions then become not biologic, but more historical and psychological. Why now? Why here? What's going on here that we cooperate and here that we look for enemies and surely find them? Yeah, it's fascinating. Just the, the idea that those two things can both be alive in us at the same time. There is, there is this adaptive quality of, of cooperation, of sharing, and yet there's still that part of us that wants to just see otherness, right? I mean, it kind of creates this conflicting sense of who we are. Yes, and I think that's, that's exactly right. We're complex. And that you could say, like, the need for identity, I am who I am, always kind of has a boundary. And the boundary is, and you are who you are, and we're a little different. That's normal. That's part of, you know, childhood development. Uh, You want your kids to learn who they are and not just be clones of their parents. What happens with something like xenophobia is it gets taken to a much, much higher level. And those boundaries become rigid. They become the difference between good and evil. They become the difference between who I can work with and who I can't, who I'm afraid of. And fear, as we know, is very much tied to aggression. So who I might attack. Uh, and that's really where we get into the problem of xenophobia, the, the t- taking of this rather normal set of differences between me and you and ramping them up to something that involves uh, value judgments, uh, a kind of hierarchy of who's good and who's bad, and then, uh, of course, the possibility of uh, violence, of conflict, and of uh, uh, a, a struggle with the other. Yeah. You talk about different paradigms of thinking about this. You bring in some really important thinkers, uh, Freud, a lot of others. Um, Welcome us into some of the voices that were paramount in how we think about these terms. Yeah, I think this is really important that xenophobia is a word, but it if we think about it just as one thing, we're going to get lost because it's complex and it has multiple ways of approaching it that help us narrow down different parts of the problem. So I start with the behaviorist model, which is Pavlov, and it basically says there's stress on a person, they scapegoat. They, uh, they, 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 get, they think that, the, that that little white rat is actually why that symbol is crashing behind their heads. That's the model for phobia that was first created in a lab. And so forevermore, they're terrified of white rats. Well, we know that um, actually on both an individual level and a social level, we can do something about that. That's the political project of integration. Put people together, they will find that they're not so scary, the other, they're not so nerve wracking, they're kind of like you and me. And so habituation, exposure, the political project of of desegregation, it works for us, a group of people who otherwise might be thought of as xenophobic. Second category, cognitive, psychology says they're stereotypes. Well, we know what we can do about stereotypes. We can uh, use education. We can struggle to make our culture less dependent on stereotypes to tell its stories about who we are. Again, we know that we can do something about this, and it also works. The tougher problem that Freud came to, not behavioral, not cognitive, but a dynamic psychology called psychoanalysis, is that some people need to hate. Mm. They don't want to go to your class about implicit bias. They don't want to desegregate. They have a deeper need to have an other. And what is that about? Well, Freud used the concept of a defensive projection, projecting the shame and the guilt that you have inside yourself onto another 
And that makes you feel great. It makes you feel cleansed. It makes you feel the inner discomfort of something in conflict inside you is gone. You now have an enemy who has made you feel absolutely stable. So those folks don't want to give up their hated other. And that's a trickier problem. It's a trickier problem for psychiatrists and individual therapy. It's a trickier problem for societies where there are subcultures. For instance, the subculture that claims uh, white supremacy. I say, what is that but an admission of a feeling of white inferiority? And yet, what do you do about it? If you shame people who are already shamed, it only gets worse. So that becomes a trickier problem that I think Freud, the psychoanalyst, Theodore Adorno, people who are thinking about authoritarianism, uh, all tried to work on, and it's still an important problem that we need to work on more today. Wow. That, that last one I, I sit with in a really kind of difficult way. Um, just those that need to hate. And it just, it resonates on, on, a, on a very deep, uncomfortable level, because let's be honest, maybe we've all been that person at times, yep. you know? And yeah. so, wow, how do we make sense of that, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's right. We all know what it's like to um, find an enemy and, and, and yeah, there's even a certain relief, even a certain kind of pleasure. And you could say that's kind of uh, part of normal human behavior, uh, demonizing others. And, and, and yet it becomes really deeply socially problematic and even pathological on the individual level when those boundaries are rigidly, rigidly maintained. Yeah. So you might have like hated the guy who, you know, stole your girl away from you in high school and just thought he would be, he used to be your best friend and now he's the worst guy on earth. Um, but that's going to melt away. And yeah, you're going to probably end up playing basketball with him again. It's going to be maybe never the way it was before, but it's not going to be forever hatred. What you find with projection, if it's rigid, is that this is a very stable defense. You know, Adorno had a great phrase. He said, that these people fall in the negative of love. He means they fall in hate the way you fall in love and I fall in love. They fall in hate. It is that kind of a encompassing experience. And he tried to really explain why that happens in particular people. And that becomes like, you know, the $64,000 question. What's the difference between people who, you know, hate uh, and then get over it, uh, normal, uh, people who rigidly commit themselves to a degraded other and become, you know, uh, part of communities that uh, have created uh, atrocities and genocides throughout the world. Yeah. You know, my experience with with anger or hatred, and I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, is that anger is in many ways one of the easiest emotions to access. And it's so easy to access uh, that it can be used to smother other ones. It, it's, it's a great emotion to cover up something much deeper at the core that's harder or more tricky to access. Do you know yeah, what I'm I, talking I, about? Yeah, I love that point because uh, I always get the inverse of that, which is they say, why do they call it phobia? I don't think these people are anxious. They're angry. Mm. And your point is precisely correct. Anger is the easy part of this. Anger is the leading edge, the powerful edge, the thing that makes you feel actually um, uh, much more in control of the situation. But the claim from xenophobia is that, you know, as it was with Walter Buchanan, who coined the term fight or flight, 
that the people who want to run away are also the people who jump into quarrels and fights and that they're related. So that there is an underlying anxiety that is covered by anger and covered by aggression. Uh, and, and that at least is, um, uh, you know, I think true for a great number of cases. So how do we start to see these different paradigms applied in the world? I mean, you say this started kind of in the 19th century, but, but what were some really prime examples you pointed to in the book? Well, the three great catastrophes of the first half of the 19th, of the 20th century, really did organize communities of people to say, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. And they were the uh, catastrophe of World War I, with uh, its nationalist fervor. So that was a xenophobia that was along nationalist lines. And uh, people saw how propaganda, caricatures, early movies could e whipped up hatred against uh, other nations, Germany, England, France, etc. So that was the first wake-up call. The second wake-up call was the genocide in the Congo, where King Leopold had taken the Congo as his personal kind of fiefdom and he had done it with all of this high-minded imperial, um, you know, language, very Orwellian about how he was bringing civilization to these people. And in fact, there was a genocide in Congo. And that became increasingly clear. Joseph Conrad wrote the story, Heart of Darkness. Roger Casement came back from Congo with a report of this horror. Congo reform associations started to spring up in liberal centers around the world. Uh, and so now there's another community that is deeply alarmed about what happens with xenophobic aggression and how it can hide behind these high-minded terms. And then, of course, the third catastrophe is uh, the Nazi genocide of the Jews. And the Holocaust really does, you know, I think, make this clear to a wide, wide number of people that this is a potentially... Um, potentially the worst kind of catastrophe that we face now with an atom bomb. Uh, you know, the combination of the two, Hiroshima and, the, and Auschwitz, uh, uh, alerted people to the danger. And that if we didn't sort out how different tribes got along together, how different, different ethnicities and religions found a way to tolerate and accept each other, uh, that we were going to be in for more of this. And it was potentially uh, so catastrophic that it was hard to even imagine. When you describe this idea of xenophobia, I, I almost get this image of it. It's like this very um, poisonous plant that's waiting in all of us to come out. It's there's something that can be triggered and suddenly it unfurls. And what is it in culture or in a leader or in a moment in time in which this thing arises? Because those were some classic examples that were stirred up in, in the culture and in the place. Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. And so we can look at this at an individual level. But what about the group level? Because mm. xenophobia from the very beginning has been seen as not just an individual phenomenon, but a way that people become masses, crowds, mobs, groups. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a, a bunch of thought. One of the problems in really being confident about how to parse all this is that group psychology is a very, very difficult field. It's very difficult to do experiments in group psychology and come up with empirical facts. But I would say that some of the most kind of powerful ideas have to do with toxic leaders and how, you know, we're all somewhat um, uh, at risk of becoming herd animals 
and following leaders. And uh, there is something very particular about the way we regress in groups and become a little bit more, you know, euphorically um, childlike. You know, if you think about the rock concert, it's not that different from the authoritarians rally. Mm. And uh, people are ecstatic. Uh, They've freed themselves of something, right? And they've given it to the leader. The leader has become the one who tells them what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, and P.S., they're good. So there is a clear, uh, you know, kind of loss of moral functioning. Uh, We're good, and whoever you tell us is evil, we're going to believe is evil, a regression that happens in groups. And so very narcissistic, toxic leaders, uh, you know, a number of people have written about how this works, uh, uh, are very much part of the puzzle when you think about uh, political movements that become uh, xenophobic. I wonder if you have thoughts on what we're witnessing right now as uh, two million plus Ukrainians are are fleeing the country. And um, in many ways, we're seeing uh, doors opening for them that w- we may not have seen before. And with your study of xenophobia and all this context, how are you making sense of this? I finished the book and I wrote a final chapter on what I thought was happening right now with the proviso that, you know, it was the present and surely it was going to get clarified as things went along. And I think my arguments have become more apparent to, to me. The invasion of the Ukraine by Russia, I mean, I think has exposed a couple of things. One is that Uh, The xenophobia that was popping up all over Western Europe and then in the United States um, had started to have, for the last, I would say, 15 years, a kind of mothership. And the mothership was uh, Russia, that the, the former Soviet Union, after its collapse, had struggled to be democratic and had lost, and that Putin had attempted to unify this extraordinarily complex, ethnically rich country by making it a white, supposedly um, Christian, protector of the Christians of white Europe. And that's why, uh, you know, the extreme right in Italy, in France, in England, in the United States, all took sucker from, uh, from Putin and from Russia. So the irony now is that those people who would potentially be aghast at more immigrants coming across are revealed, actually, Uh, because these are Slavs. They're coming across, my guess is that they're coming across now with a highly weakened xenophobic groups in in Europe. And so you're going to find the pro-EU globalists and Democrats are going to welcome these people. And it's going to be highly ironic for the Arabs and the North Africans uh, to see that that the Slavs are being so welcomed. But it's going to be a good thing because this is obviously a catastrophe. You know, I think that that uh, this is a catastrophe that has this one silver lining that that it's exposed the xenophobes of the West as being um, attempts to destabilize a globalist uh, democratic front that now has pulled together rather rapidly and powerfully as it faces its own enemy. And I think this is maybe the big question on the program is. You know, how do we grapple with the discomfort of, of feeling sympathy with Ukrainian refugees and not with those from North Africa or South America who are also fleeing for their lives? It's a hard one to sit with. It, it, it's, it's precisely the right one to sit with. 
So I think that you're right. We all should challenge ourselves. Why is it? And where does that come from? And uh, yes, maybe um, exposure. Look, uh, I think that uh, one of the things that emerged as people started to say xenophobia is a big problem was mass communications started to uh, allow for communication all over the place. That was in the 1910s with telegraphs. We're in a period of time where TikTok and Twitter and we have the capacity to be in touch with people who are very, very, very different than we are. And if we refuse to do that or choose not to, we have to ask why, because certainly that would be a choice. Uh, so yes, I think that's going to be, uh, we, we're in the middle of a, of a massive change as the digital universe kind of organizes itself. And as the nation state struggles with its own boundaries, as identities become altered and more, uh, uh, and more fungible. So I do think that this is a time where uh, many of us are going to have to struggle because we're going to be exposed to a lot more and have to morally wrestle with what does this mean for me? I've been speaking with George Macari. He's the author of the new book of Fear and Strangers, A History of Xenophobia. George, really, really interesting, important stuff. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come, war refugees and the resilience of children. We'll continue our conversation on the reality of migration and humanitarian crises. And while I have you, we're just about to start our second year on Life Examined on KCRW. And we have one goal of getting to 200 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if that's where you listen, please take a moment to write in. It helps us grow the show and it keeps us connected. Thank you so much. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard author and psychiatrist George Macari talk about the moral dilemma of feeling sympathy for European refugees while ignoring those from North Africa or Central America. So how do we address that disparity? And what is life like in an East African refugee camp? Alexis Akeowo is a staff writer at The New Yorker and reports on conflict, human rights, and culture across Africa, as well as from Mexico. She's also the author of A Moonless, Starless Sky— Ordinary Women and Men Fighting Extremism in Africa. Alexis Akeowo, welcome to Life Examined. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I, I wonder, as, as a seasoned journalist who's covered uh, refugees and, and migratory patterns of people leaving uh, very difficult circumstances, how has it been for you watching the conflict in Ukraine and now we're seeing two million plus people fleeing the borders trying to get out? How has it been from your side of this? Yeah, it's been very strange, to be honest. On the one hand, I'm so glad that Ukraine's neighboring countries have received uh, people fleeing from Ukraine so warmly on the most part. Um, but on the other hand, as someone who has written about refugees for over a decade, um, it's also, as I said, strange because... You know, I started out working in, in East Africa and Uganda 
um, and in Kenya, um, interviewing people who had spent their entire lives in refugee camps, uh, people who were born there, grew up there, and couldn't really envision a life outside of these camps. And so it's amazing, and, and largely had spent that time in those camps because no other country would accept them. Uh, it, it was the dream to be able to go to the U.S. or to Europe or to another place, but that was often out of the question because of those countries' uh, policies regarding refugees from those countries in Africa. And so, um, you know, over the last couple of days, as we've seen the European Union um, basically declare open borders for refugees for Ukraine and also uh, allow them, you know, the right to stay in the EU for, I think it's now three years. Um, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. It's, it's a bit surreal because it begs the question, you know, why not other people who, who fled conflict and oppression and terror and who have spent so much of their lives in camps and will probably never make it out? That's a really, yeah, that's a very big, big question. And do we just perhaps call it what it is? There are racial tensions at play. There are fears of, quote, the other, of, of different ethnicities. What, I mean, what do, we, what do we make of this? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and to be, you know, leaders uh, have said it outright. I mean, leaders from Eastern Europe, um, Poland, Hungary, have, have openly said they don't want refugees who are Muslim. They don't want refugees who um, they feel, you know, they've called them sort of Muslim invaders and this implication that uh, accepting people who are too foreign will change the characters of their countries and, um, you know, be, be a negative influence on society. And, uh, yeah, so definitely there's, there's, there's racism, there's Islamophobia, and, you know, there's been this certain sort of uh, reaction among a lot of people, like, wow, you know, these refugees from Ukraine, they have blue eyes, they have blonde hair, they, they look like us, whatever us is. And I think that definitely has influenced uh, the reception of many people um, as to their plight. It, it, it's allowed a lot of people to empathize more with Ukrainian refugees, which is really sad. Um, you know, it, it makes me think, you know, surely it can't require someone to have had the experience I had, which is, you know, living in Africa, living in Mexico, um, spending time with people there to realize that these are human beings too. Say more about those experiences, if you can, about what it is to be stuck in in a camp for an unknown period of time. What does that do to someone's psyche, to their body, to their sense of a future? I, I'm 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 really curious. Yeah, I think you know it was. It, it really is such a remarkable and sort of horrible thing, the idea of like children being born in refugee camps because their parents fled a conflict. You know, I'm sure once their parents made it to they, their camp, they thought it would be temporary and that within a short amount of time they could get somewhere better. Instead, they're stuck there day in, day out. Their children are born there. Their, their children go to school there. Options feel and are limited. Um, the scope of, the, of your horizon is, is so narrow. Um, but yet you can see through the internet, through TV, that 
there's so many other options for other people and you I think you kind of wonder why not you you know are you not why are you not enough and um yeah I think that's one of the most stark things about some of these camps that have been to in East Africa and other places is the fact that children are born here born there and um there isn't a lot of hope that that, that they can go somewhere else the, the refugee camp which is was destined to be a temporary thing has become a permanent living place um which is just cruel in my opinion yeah what does that mean to to live in a place that that is not a home that is a way station I don't, what like do any memories come to mind or people or, or or emotions come to you when you think of that yeah you know it's interesting because this idea of home you know it, it's, it's it's not it's been something that's been said before is like people don't want to leave their homes unless they have to unless it becomes impossible to stay and and by this i'm speaking about refugees who leave because of again, conflict or oppression or terrorism, um, as opposed to economic migrants. But even then, you know, uh, they also leave because it it becomes impossible to make a life for themselves and their families. And, um, you know, I I remember, like, for example, interviewing the national soccer team uh, for the country of Eritrea, which is basically a police state in the Horn of Africa, where all young people are forcibly conscripted into military service. it's, it's a very severe authoritative state where there's limited freedom. And the soccer team was playing a game in Botswana and they all decided to defect. Uh, and they were put into a refugee camp in, in, in Botswana. And, and a, a lot of them, as, as, as far as when I last checked, are still there. And, you know, when we were talking, you know, they're pulling up pictures. They're telling me memories about their friends, their family in Eritrea. I went to Eritrea. It's a beautiful country. You know, this is, they didn't want to leave, you know. Um, they felt that they had to because they're in their early 20s and um, they just felt like this was not a life, this was not like any kind of life to live. And so I guess my point is just that like for everyone I talk to, they missed home. They would rather be home with their friends and family instead of in Europe or in the U.S., where often um, they face sort of a unfriendly or cold or hostile reaction if they make it there, or more often they get stuck in refugee camps that um, are alienating and make them feel depressed. Um, you know, even these guys in the soccer team, they were kind of at some point wondering, did we make the right choice, even though you know, they knew they had because they just got stuck in this limbo. I think it's the limbo of it that's so, like, uh, damaging. It's interesting when you describe if your three options are a, a home that's filled of con- with conflict or a refugee camp or a xenophobic country that will maybe take you in but under very hostile circumstances— it seems that we have three fairly bad scenarios to choose from. Right. So, for example, I'm in Italy right now, and that's also why this uh, Ukraine crisis is feeling strange to me right now, because I was always planning to come here to report on Europe's other migration crisis, which is the fact that, you know, over the last decade, millions of refugees have come from Africa, from the Middle East, to seek refuge in Europe. And over that decade, plus, Europe has become even more hostile, uh, more unfriendly to refugees through various policies trying to prevent them from coming. 
Um, and, and I actually spent uh, the last few days in Lampedusa, which is this part of Italy that's the closest to Africa. And thousands of migrants, you know, make this journey over the Mediterranean every day, every week um, to, to, to get to Italy's borders uh, where, you know, if they make it, if they don't drown, if they don't, you know, die along the way, um, they face a very difficult process to apply for asylum and, and to make a life here. Um, you know, in fact, migrants try to like, if they get here to, to find ways to keep going to Northern Europe because they find it, uh, Italy such a difficult place to live and to be treated fairly. So it's just like one hurdle after the other, you know, they dream of crossing the Sahara and crossing the Mediterranean to make it to Italy in one piece if they can make it through Libya where so many abuses and torture happens. But then you get to Italy, you get to Europe, and um, you're often treated pretty badly. Mm. So the fact that people still do it every day, I think, says a lot. I, I wonder, as we slowly begin to to close out our time, if there was someone in your reporting that just continues to stay with you, perhaps uh, could have been from the camps in Uganda or somebody else in a very trying refugee situation. I, any, any faces come back into your memory? I guess the, the country where I spent the most time in its refugee camps uh, was Uganda because I started going there first uh, as, a, as, as a new journalist right when the country's civil war was sort of starting to to wrap up uh there was like peace on the horizon you know i i, I was a new journalist so i i remember just being really overwhelmed because the way it worked is that the lord's resistance army in, U- in northern uganda had completely ravaged the north um it was doing the most horrible things it was conscripting child soldiers um mutilating and killing civilians so in the camps you know there were I remember meeting a woman, you know, with her lips and nose chopped off by the LRA. I remember meeting child soldiers who had escaped. And, you know, I remember meeting one boy who he had been abducted to be a child soldier. Um, He had escaped. He was now back in school. You know, he had his he had this little hut where he had his like books and his clothes. I remember he loved American hip hop and we were talking about that. And I just, you know, remember thinking, like, I wonder what life is going to be like for him. Like, he he wanted to go to college in the U.S. And, but even then, I, I knew that that was probably not going to happen. Like, even though he was living in, like, a, a wasteland, basically. Northern Uganda was a wasteland after the Civil War. You know, there there weren't many opportunities. And, you know, there weren't really any countries saying, okay, we'll take you. You've just survived the worst thing that's ever happened to you. You know, we want to give you help. There was none of that. Um, and and I remember, yeah, he was maybe a few years younger than I was at the time. And I just remember thinking, like, why him? You know, why? Why did this happen to him? He doesn't deserve this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, since then, I think what's people who have stuck out to me the most are especially, like, young people. Um, at the camps, like people who were born there, like this soccer team that I was telling you about from Eritrea, who I literally expected. I mean, Eritrea is one of the most condemned, politically condemned countries in the world. I, I truly expected that some country would swoop them up and say, 
you were so brave, you escaped your country. And instead, they were just languishing in this refugee camp, wondering what was going to happen to them and realizing that nothing was going to happen. Lastly, is there any, any text you'd like to read us from, from something you've written? could be a recent book or article. Is there anything that you feel would be a nice way to end the interview? So this passage is from my recent piece in The New Yorker about uh, Europe's other migration crisis, the millions of refugees still arriving from Africa and the Middle East who have a very difficult time finding refuge in Europe uh, because of Europe's restrictive policies towards them. Um, I've been recently spending time with this activist from Eritrea named Tereke, who is himself a refugee from Eritrea. It took him four years to make the journey from there to Italy. Uh, He was imprisoned in Libya, suffered a lot of violence, and is now working on trying to improve conditions for refugees here. And so I was asking him, you know, we were spending time together, what do you think about the reception to refugees from Ukraine? Do you think it'll affect... Uh, other refugees, you know, will it make policy more humane to African and Middle Eastern refugees? And this is for my piece. Many humanitarians doubt that the sudden change in mood toward refugees escaping Ukraine will affect the migrants still risking their lives on the Mediterranean to make it to Europe. It may be too late to undo the damage of deeply xenophobic politics. Tereke Byrne, The president of the October 3rd committee told me, when you talk about Ukraine, everyone wants to listen. Everyone opens their heart. When you talk about Eritrea, Sudan, Somalia, no one wants to know. They say no, but it's different. Why? We come from Africa, from Syria, from other places. We are nothing to them. I've been speaking with Alexis Akeowo, staff writer at The New Yorker. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. As hard as it is for us as adults to grapple with war-fueled pain and injustice, we'll finish today by following up on something Alexis Akeowo observed time and time again in refugee camps. Children who are born and grow up in conflict zones. How do they survive? Are they immune to fear? What gives them hope and resilience? Simon Wilmont is a Danish documentary filmmaker and the director of two documentaries filmed in eastern Ukraine, The Distant Barking of Dogs and A House Made of Splinters. Wilmont follows the lives of children impacted by the ongoing conflict and documents what happens to them when society is torn apart by war. Simon Wilmont, welcome to KCRW. Thank you. Can you talk about why you thought it was so important to tell stories of children in eastern Ukraine? Uh, this is a place we're thinking so much about, but clearly it was it was a subject you wanted to cover before there was even a war uh, or a, a larger scale war going on, I should say. I was very interested because there's so many kids living in conflict zones around the world at this time. I was very interested uh, to see where these kids who have very unsafe lives where they go to find that sense of comfort and uh, stability and safety 
that I think you need maybe to 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 grow up and and be well functioning and and have a normal life. Yeah, well, you cover a, a very remarkable young boy named Oleg. This is in a film of yours called "The Distant Barking of Dogs." And can you can you tell me about Oleg? Who is he? Where does he live? Oleg uh, lives um, roughly 800 meters from the front line of the war in eastern Ukraine, down in the southern parts. Uh, near the Azov Sea, and he lives there in a small house with his beloved grandma, Alexandra, who has custody over him. What's his life like? How has he been impacted by conflict? Well, until the terrible invasion, uh, in a lot of ways, it was a very normal country life uh, for a boy like Oleg. Um, You know, going to school, uh, getting home, doing your homework, doing your chores, having dinner and hanging out with your friends. Mm. But then, you know, from time to time, reality is completely shattered by a heavy shooting uh, nearby or maybe even a, a mortar shelling. Wow. And how, how does he react to this? What does this do to his life? I think Oleg is very uh, fortunate that he has such an amazing uh, and wise grandma uh, to take care of him. Alexandra knows that 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 instinctly that that she has to be the rock that he can lean upon so uh, she's honest with him uh, she never makes him believe or tells him fairy tales about where the war is going or stuff like this uh, but she always uh, you know makes sure that she's calm in front of him so that he can see her as like the the adult who has things under control yeah um and i think that that makes Oleg safe, uh, as opposed to a lot of the other kids uh, that I would meet out by the by in these areas. Some of them who had parents who were, you know, not able uh, to to keep their cool. For example, the neighbors at one time when there was a very hard shelling uh, near the village, uh, the mom lost her cool, and that resulted in uh, her child started vomiting. And from there on on, for example, you know, every time there was shelling the child would vomit. So it tells you a lot about, you know, it depends on, on on which kind of people, you know, the kids has around them. Yeah, and there's this idea in psychology that when there's a crisis, there needs to be at least one person who can remain emotionally regulated and calm, even if everyone around them is, exactly. is, is unregulated. So I think you, you really beautifully illustrate that point. Um, I wonder just the the greater impact you've noticed on conflict zones on children. Are they able to find resilience? Do they become traumatized? What what have you seen? I've seen both uh, one and the other. I think kids have a, you know a natural resilience, and I think that they have a remarkable ability to adapt and to survive, and sometimes even to find the magic uh, in life, despite you know, tragic circumstances. Uh, but if they don't have that support around them, if they don't have that rock that we're talking about that they can lean to, uh, then some of them do break, yeah. obviously. And uh, that that scars that can scar them for life. And I wonder for the children that are living there, what, what type of things would they witness? You mentioned shellings, um, other acts of violence. What, what would you, what would they see? Some of them have seen most brutal stuff and some of them even, you know, has scars not only on their soul, but also on their bodies. Mm. Mm. One of the girls I met at the orphanage, for example, um, 
in 2014. She was living uh, with her mom and her grandma uh, in an area that was heavily shelled. And she still carries a scar that's roughly 15 centimeters on a, what I think, as I remember, was her left arm. Mm. After that, her mom lost her mind uh, and uh, yeah, disappeared, leaving her alone with the grandma. And uh, that's why in the end, because the grandma was too old to take care of her, that's why she was removed and taken to this amazing temporary uh, orphanage. So that's just one example of what these kids has to go through. Yeah, yeah. and this orphanage is, is profiled in another film, House Made of Splinters. And I wonder if you've been in touch with any of these children or Oleg over the last week or so as the fighting has escalated and uh, we know that there's been a loss of life and destruction. Have you heard anything from the subjects of your film or from the community? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in contact with both Oleg and his family and with uh, the caregivers at the, at the shelter, the orphanage. Um, and in Oleg's case, we are, were actually trying to uh, persuade uh, his grandma, Alexandra, to, uh, to leave uh, um, her place at, in the countryside and move further, further inland west. Um, uh, but before uh, her tra train ticket that we got for her, before she could use it, the invasion came. So uh, we were a little mm. bit worried, uh, actually a lot worried, uh, that she wouldn't be able to get out with her family. Uh, but luckily, she managed to get uh, on her own. Uh, she managed to get further inland with the family. Uh, and that's where we've now helped her to find a place where they're relatively safe. But at this point in time, you know, it changes from almost hour to hour. So they're, they're living in a basement most of the days right now. That's what she's written me. Uh, and in regards to the orphanage, uh, we're in contact with two of the main characters of the film, two of the social workers taking care of the of the kids. And one of them, uh, on the early morning of the invasion, uh, she uh, boarded a train with most of the kids from the orphanage and they went west. So they're in relative safety uh, now, at least for now. The other caregiver, she chose to stay because this is her birth town and she has her uh, uh, family here still so she she uh, didn't want to go and she's also living uh, in a basement with her with her family um, trying to hold out while the the um, town is uh, being uh, bombarded at mm -hmm. the moment wow. yeah it's heartbreaking and it's frustrating um, these are people that I know and I really care for um, and and not being able to to physically uh, do anything and uh, it's it's very difficult. Yeah. I've been speaking with Simon Wilmont. He's a documentary filmmaker and has made multiple films in Eastern Ukraine, including The Distant Barking of Dogs and A House Made of Splinters. Simon, thanks for the time. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening as we all collectively try to make sense of this historic conflict. And if you missed us last week, we took a look at why we fight wars and the idea of confronting evil with historian Margaret McMillan and Rabbi Steve Leader. You can find links to our guests and to Simon Wilmont's documentaries at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. 
The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And as I mentioned earlier, as we come up on the two-year anniversary of the show, we're aiming for 200 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're grateful to now have tens of thousands of listeners. And if you're one of them, please take a moment to write and share some thoughts. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.